0: Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Michael Imperioli, an actor, screenwriter, and musician out of the United States. We discuss Buddhism, compassion, the arts, and our shared humanity. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi.
1: Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour,
2: So welcome back to Fucking Cancel. Welcome
0: back to Fucking Cancel.
2: Today, um, we are joined by a very special guest, Michael Imperioli. Hi, Michael. Thanks for coming on the
1: pod. Thanks for having me.
2: Um, Do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do by way of introduction?
1: Um, I'm mostly an actor, but also uh, I've written for um, television, film, and as well as some fiction. And um, um, I play uh, in an indie rock band called Zopa. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I play guitar and sing. Um, it's a rock trio, indie rock trio, um, that we've, we've been uh, together since 2006, on and off, currently on, which is fun. And um, um, that's the broad strokes, I guess.
2: Awesome. And I guess, yeah, so I met you, Michael, through Instagram, and on Instagram, i um, I noticed that you talk a lot about spirituality and Buddhism. And then we talked a little bit about that when we were hanging out in New York. So today we wanted to focus the interview on that. So basically, um, can you tell us like how you came to Buddhism?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I be- became Buddhist. So they say when, when when you become Buddhist, you take the formal vow or ceremony of becoming Buddhist is called taking refuge. Mm. so i took refuge vows um what year was it now i'm spacing out 2008 2008 um but before that well in a nutshell um i spent all my 20s pretty much pursuing um acting for the most part but also also writing and I was producing theater in, in my early 20s and playing music and stuff, but really was very, very focused on all of that, career and work. I hardly left New York unless it was for work, and, and my whole I, mean, I had a lot of jobs in the meantime before I started making a living, but I really wanted to be successful at it. And then uh, shortly after I turned 30, I got onto The Sopranos, where I was an actor, um, and then a little bit as a writer, but and that became very successful. So a lot of the things I had worked for kind of came to fruition around when I was thirty-one, and I was I had just gotten married, and uh, had a stepdaughter, had a young, had a baby, and um, and everything was really good, you know. I, I, I was supporting myself as an actor and um, great family and friends and really great creative work, all those things. And it was all, it was wonderful, you know, wonderful family and friends and things like that. Yet inside, there were still some demons that had not been, I mean, I say that, you know, metaphorically, but, um, and, and was abusing drugs and alcohol, basically not, not, not anything to write home about or anything exciting. I, um, I don't go, I don't really go into those war stories,
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, but pretty much like a lot of people and actors and creatives that
3: mm-hmm.
1: go through that sometimes uh, often. And um, I started looking into different path, spiritual paths because I felt there was something I needed spiritual, spirituality wise in my life, some kind of connection to something higher. And, and and I really was kind of leaning into mysticism more than anything. And a lot of um, mystic traditions, Eastern traditions, like uh, the work of like Gurdjieff and Uspensky, and uh, some of the Indian mystics like Krishnamurti and um, even strange stuff like Carlos castaneda you know and who I read a lot of his stuff and, and uh, <laughs> even occultism and, and and looked into a lot of different paths all a lot of which some were some were interesting some were a little bit off the wall but some had a lot of heart but mm-hmm. uh, I would get into a book and then the book would be over and I had no practice there was no path that had really opened for me within any of these traditions and mm-hmm. then we at a kind of a new age bookstore we saw a flyer for a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who was doing a a teaching in new york and my wife and i went and that was the beginning because there was a lot of wisdom that i felt was very authentic and connected to a lineage and an authentic tradition Um, and there was a practice and a path Mm. and and oddly enough the first buddhist teaching we went to My wife and I walked in. It was only a few blocks from where we were living, but we didn't even know it was there because it was on this little back alleyway street that in the 80s was a very decadent nightclub, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And both my wife and I had been there before we even met. We had both been in that nightclub. I found that very ironic that this place where we used to (laughs) engage in all these, you know, debauchery now is a buddhist center that we walked into so then that that was the beginning really that's how i got into
0: it Uh, that's that's super interesting yeah like me and clementine often talk on the pod and you know just to each other about the fact that um a lot of people could probably like use some kind of spiritual practice but we're, we're we're very bereft of that you know like a lot of um a lot of our spiritual traditions have been kind of uh um forgotten or or people drift away from them because of the obvious problems with them you know um but it leaves us in this place of great alienation and uh, a lot of people are really unhappy and have no real way to move through it um but yeah could you if you had to explain buddhism to someone who had never heard of it like no. what how, what would you tell them about it how, how would you explain buddhism
1: that's a really good a really good question um a To me, Buddhism is much more like a um, philosophy or psychology than it is a religion, because Mm -hmm. it's not theistic. Buddha was not a god, is not worshipped as a god. There's no creator who created the world. There's no interventionist being that if you supplicate, they will come and save you and help you and things like that. the basic theory of Buddhism is that we all have this enlightened nature within us. And it's a matter of working with the mind to see the mind's patterns and see the mind's, you know, problems and where it gets stuck and where it gets caught by afflictive emotions, you know, and clear through that. So you can tap into this Buddha nature. Um, and, uh, basically, the three things that Buddha taught was one, do no harm. And not in a dogmatic kind of way. It's basic sanity, right? Don't kill, don't steal things that are not, don't belong to you. Don't commit sexual misconduct. And by that it's something that's going to harm yourself or others. You know what I mean? Mm Um, uh, something that, you know, any kind of sex that's, that's, Basically, causing harm, you know, that's abusive, that's taking advantage of someone else, that's, you know, causing you a lot of shame, whatever it is, you know, outside of a relationship and infidelity, that's going to hurt the partner. All the, uh, um, there's no taboo against something like uh, polyamory, if that's mm-hmm. what you want, or uh, in bisexuality, homosexuality. There's no, that, as long as that's consensual and, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind. Right. Um, you know, the other things like, like, uh, lying, but even lying is interesting because it's about motivation. So if I see my mom and I think she looks really old and scary today, and I say, you look wonderful, that's a lie, but my motivation is very kind. Right. Mm. Um, so even that there's, you know, but like, you know, divisive speech, slander, things like that. That's that's Mm. those things are harmful and thoughts like really being envious and jealous or wanting somebody to do bad or wanting, wishing someone harm. So so those are the, you know, things of body, speech, and mind that are negative, right? That's mm-hmm. one. Do no harm. Number two, do good. Cultivate mm-hmm. virtue. Cultivate patience. Cultivate kindness. Cultivate generosity. All those things that we consider spiritual qualities, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, cultivate that. Bring bring that. Uh, you know, let that become your your default. Let that become how you approach the world. You know, um, and, and then number three. Tame the mind. Now, tame the mind does not mean, uh, by tame the mind, it means working with the mind so the mind does what you want it to do. It doesn't mean, like, become a less passionate person. It doesn't mean, you know, you can, you you know, to become more serious or more, you know, or or quell your impulses. Mm. What it is, is work with the mind so you're not, you know, so you're not victim to habitual patterns, old Mm. things, old kind of conditioning. Um, fears, you know, uh, social conditioning and all that. So you so you can really have a clear view of what you want, of what your mind is doing so your mind can do that. Because your mind really is the operating system. Everything that you take in mm-hmm. and all the things that eventually you do in body, speech, and mind first comes through the mind.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's basically Buddhism. There's really nothing religious in anything I said except talking about some ethical discipline, but that's, how could you expect to have any kind of spiritual Mm -hmm. qualities without any kind of ethical discipline? We're not talking about morality. We're not talking about dogma. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, you know, it's, and that's why I like it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why it's, a lot of people feel less intimidated by other traditions with Buddhism because of that. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm. So, yeah, you talked about how in your spiritual seeking, um, you know, many of the, um, the things you found didn't offer a path and like Buddhism offered like a path that offered a practice. And so I don't know a lot about Buddhism, but my understanding is that a lot of the practice to actually put what you just said, these three things like into concrete action has to do with the practice of meditation. So can you talk to us about meditation and what it is and what it can offer people.
1: Yeah, I'd say the practice would be hearing, pondering, and meditation. So hearing is hearing the teachings, either reading them or actually listening to them on on YouTube or on the tapes or in person. Pondering, listening to those teachings, trying to discern how they apply to you and how you can apply yourself to them. And meditation, meaning working with the mind. You know, meditation is really about... The two misconceptions, because my wife and I teach meditation now. The Mm -hmm. last two and a half years, I've had this online meditation class. The two giant misconceptions about meditation. One is my mind is particularly busy more than most people. So that's why I can't meditate. That's a misconception. Everybody's mind is busy. That's why we need to meditate. (laughs) It's It's not like some people are more suited to it. It's hard when you start because you've never really done it. You see the avalanche and waterfall of thoughts that continually you know, move through your mind. Um, so everybody's mind is busy. The mind thinks, that's what it does.
3: Hmm. Number
1: two, the other misconception is that meditation is about not thinking. So they, people get this doing bad, they feel they're doing bad because they can't stop thinking. It's about working with your thoughts
3: Mm.
1: It's not about eliminating them. It's about working with the thoughts as the thoughts arise, looking at them. It's really kind of slowing everything down so you start to see how your mind works because um, when I started meditating it was really hard. I mean it's still it's still hard. it's not it's not something that's just easy. But what was hard was seeing how the thoughts, How many thoughts there are, how one leads to the next leads to the next, how it's this running thing Mm -hmm. that pretty much occupies your mind all the time. And uh, and also how some thoughts are stickier than others. By sticky, Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes we'll think about somebody who did something to you yesterday or a month ago or a year ago and that I should have said this to that person or I the, the way they spoke to me really got to me you know or that stickiness of like this person I really desire and I'm thinking about this person and, and you know maybe you know somebody who's unavailable or uh, you know that you shouldn't be pursuing but you you obsess on that that's where like kind of obsessive thinking comes in or
3: mm-hmm. you know
1: um, addiction sticky thoughts you know and addiction kind of go together. So the meditation really allows you to start to see A, how these thoughts arise in the mind and B, how they dissolve back into the mind. And if you start to watch the thoughts and you think of the thoughts as like we use a visualization as we meditate of the limitless, clear blue sky, stainless, you know, infinite blue sky. That's the true nature of our mind. That's where Buddha nature really is. And thoughts arise like a cloud, which a cloud comes out of the sky and then it dissolves back in and it doesn't stain the sky. It doesn't hurt the sky. It doesn't do anything to the sky. It arises and it goes back. And we try to work with the thoughts in that fashion. So you're meditating, you're, you're in a certain posture and you're breathing and you're kind of focusing on your breath. And then you realize, oh, I'm thinking about Uh, Am I making sense on this podcast is what I'm saying clear and I hear it in my and then I go, okay. And then what and then you kind of leave the thought where it is. Don't judge it. Don't follow it. Don't push it away. And kind of imagine it just dissolving back into that sky. And then you have a little moment until the next thought arises, but it's, it's really kind of all you do in meditation, Mm -hmm. stuff like that.
0: Mm -hmm. could you tell us more about the class that you run the meditation class
1: so i got an instagram right before the pandemic and i do a lot of indie stuff like in in theater and film and music and readings and things and i thought this will be a good way to get people to events basically because sometimes it's hard (laughs) it's hard to get people to come to stuff and my wife and i and some other colleagues we've we're always doing lots of these things. So I was like, I'll go on Instagram, that's kind of a good way to get people this stuff. And also, I I wanted to turn people on to things that move me, things that are important to me, art, mostly art, and Buddhism, really, spirituality. So I started posting a lot of Buddhist stuff. Then the pandemic hit, and a lot of people would write me saying, how do I meditate? I'm stressed out because of the pandemic, and I'm nervous and anxious. And I would write people back on on DMs saying this kind of real meditation instructions. And it started happening a lot to the point where I was like, maybe I need to just make a video with these instructions rather than having to write back to people all the time. And at first I tried to do an Instagram live and it was a disaster because you have all these people who are not really there for meditation, mm-hmm. writing in and chiming in and stuff. But yeah. a young man in Chicago wrote to me and said, do you need tech help? He said, I run webinars, zoom webinars for second city in Chicago. And I gave him my number and he called and he started producing the class as a zoom webinar that I promote on Instagram with a link in my bio, where you go register, get with your email and you get a zoom invite. It's free. It's, it's free. You know, it's been free since we started. And um, it started as secular meditation, meaning no talk of Buddhism, only meditation technique. And we would have a QA. and a And I asked my teacher, Garchin Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan Buddhist Lama, before I started, I said, listen, a lot of people on Instagram are asking me to teach the meditation. Should I do this? Can I do this? He said, you don't have to ask me. As long as you have a mind, you know, in your mind, you want to benefit people, go ahead. Then people kept asking about Buddhism, um, lots of different topics and karma and all kinds of things. And I went back to my teacher and I said, You know, they're really asking a lot about Dharma, you know, Buddhism, what should I do? He said, You can talk about Buddhism, but keep the focus on the mind because Buddha is not the name of a man, Buddha is the name of your mind. And that began we began starting to have more of a Buddha Dharma talk. In addition to the medit- so the, the same meditation instruction and pract- sitting group practice. Mm. Uh, and then about a year ago, uh, my wife Victoria started joining me. She's actually much more knowledgeable about all of this than I am. So she's been really bringing a lot, a lot of very specific um, instructions into the class and teaching so it's been and then now it's been um, we have students in di- a lot of different countries and from a lot of different traditions a lot of whom stay in their own traditions but several people have become buddhists since we started mm-hmm. and um, and uh, it's been like two and a half years now mm. hell that yeah awesome. that's awesome it's very cool
2: um, so yeah I'm very curious about Buddhism. I feel like it's been kind of like on my radar lately with various Buddhists kind of popping up and telling me about it as I've been spiritually seeking. And I don't know a ton about it, but I have done meditation in various contexts throughout my life because meditation is often prescribed for people with trauma and also for addicts, you know, so I've come across it a lot. And one type of meditation that I came across when I was doing a trauma program I think it's called a meta meditation and it comes, I think from Buddhism, but I tell people about it all the time. And basically it's like a compassion meditation where you, you imagine like someone that you feel, um, very positively towards someone that you love, you know, and you like imagine that. And then you think about someone that you feel neutral towards, but you try to extend that like same feeling of compassion. And then you think about someone that you really dislike and you try to do the same so I always thought that was very interesting. Um, I'm not sure if I if, if I told that well, but that's how it was taught to me. No, you,
1: you told it really well. Uh, actually, this week, no, we usually don't do that specifically. We've taught a certain practice that's similar. But mm-hmm. la- th- this last Sunday, Victoria did a meditation specifically with someone uh, that you don't like because our students, a lot of them have issues with Certain people, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. the people you like, you know, it's okay. You know, the people you're neutral, it's okay. (laughs) The people that give you problems,
3: Mm -hmm. that's
1: often where the work lies. And we just did exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's a specific form because you're dealing with focusing your attention on compassion. Mm -hmm. Very, very important and very valuable, you know. Um, so. I mean, that's uh, I think often in my tradition that that is done sometimes uh, instead of or in addition to just the mindfulness meditation that I was describing before. Mm But, um, you know, I think the important thing that I really try to stress with the students is that you start to make meditation a regular thing, like you don't have to do a long time. I encourage people to start with short sessions. It could be as short as five minutes, three minutes, you know, but as you get comfortable, you might make it a little longer, but more you can make it a daily thing or almost daily thing, you know, like, like anything else that you really Mm want to, like if you're working out or something like that, you know, it really helps to start to, um, if you make it regular, because the point really is to start to bring that mindfulness and awareness that you're cultivating in meditation into your daily life.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: That same awareness that starts to happen as you work with your mind and gain a little bit of spaciousness and you start to see how your mind works and your thoughts. You try to bring that
3: mm-hmm. into
1: situations in life. That's really what we're trying to do. For sure.
0: Um, i'm interested in that element of of compassion particularly um i mean it strikes me that the the project of the left broadly is to take the idea of compassion and turn it into um policy to build a world that in which our 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 policy making is like from a perspective of compassion um And yeah, so I mean, I've always been really interested in compassion and, and finding ways to make it concrete in the world, you know, so that it's not just a feeling. It's like, it's like, it's made real. Um, How does Buddhism teach compassion? And and, um, how does
1: it? Yeah, why is it important? Um, Buddhism teaches compassion by basically saying, you know, the reason why we suffer, right, is because we don't understand our true nature which is buddha nature like i described before which is on a very ultimate ultimate level is non-dual is that we you know the idea that we are separate that i'm separate from you that my subjective experience and whatever objective objective thing i see out there are Mm -hmm. are are separate is just my perception from my limitations through my sense faculties and the way i see things now how do you live through that that's very difficult but uh, uh the other the other important concept is interdependence that we're mm. completely interdependent as beings as as well as impermanent that everything you know we're not you know everything that's material eventually goes disintegrates or disappears Um, so the compassion that's taught in buddhism is to understand that even your worst enemy right someone who mistreats you they do that because they're really under the burden of all these delusions that and and they suffer greatly from that i say in my class pretty much every week this does not mean be a doormat Mm -hmm. Buddhists are not, it's not turn the other cheek, that kind of, it, it does not mean being a doormat because being a doormat is allowing somebody, say somebody who's very afflicted with anger, who's full of that. If you allow them to do whatever you want, then you're allowing them to wallow in their negative karma and energy. So, uh, you know, I stress that all the time. Having compassion doesn't mean allowing, like if I'm on the subway and I see some really angry, out of control person... Starting to beat some frail elderly person, I can't just sit there and go, I have compassion for that guy mm-hmm. beating up because he's, I'm sure he's had a rough life. No, I may have to get in the middle of it and stop it,
3: right? Mm-hmm.
1: Because it's not just about me. Mm-hmm. Because your basic sanity tells you this defenseless person needs help. Mm-hmm. And maybe that intervention will somehow teach a lesson to this other person who's afflicted with all this anger and maybe not but i I really stress that all the time because people often you know that element of being you know cultivating compassion for people who do harm Mm -hmm. is very difficult for a lot of people um i also stress all the time for people who are dealing with trauma or really clinical depression or serious anxiety and stuff that Uh, who are in our class that they really if those things are, are very, you know, chronic or or very present in their lives, that they should have some kind of professional, you know, e-therapy or, Mm or some, you know, psychologist or whatever, whatever it is, if if it's really because, you know, we're not trained in those things, you know, we're teaching meditation. So I always stress, if you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing with chronic depression, anxiety, that kind of thing. A trauma mm-hmm. that you should have some, you know, professional help. That this could be a good adjunct to it. But mm-hmm. um, sure. So compassion is really, and and the more my my teacher was in prison for twenty years when when the Chinese took over Tibet in 1959. A lot of the the lamas, you know, the, the, the monks and the, the teachers and stuff were put in prison. He was in labor camp for 20 years. And a lot of his practice was about not having hatred for these people who mm-hmm. were, you know, his, his oppressors, his jailers. Um, it wasn't that he was, ex- you know, accepting this, that it was okay or anything like that. But his philosophy, which is Buddhist philosophy, is that if you're giving rise to hatred then you're compounding your suffering, you know, that you're already, you're already experiencing. And that if he could find some compassion for these people, that is much more in line with his practice. Mm -hmm. So the compassion is really, you know, it's about, it's having a very broad view, you know, and going kind of beyond, again, that habitual way our mind thinks, our knee-jerk responses, our learned responses and defenses. So what I try to explain is that, so you kind of have a bit more spaciousness in situations, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not on the level of, of my teacher by any stretch of the imagination, you know what I mean? But I do notice... In situations, a bit more spaciousness, a bit more openness, and, uh, and um, sometimes something can set you off and you become impatient and you start reacting and expecting mm-hmm. things. But in general, what I know, I do notice is that a, a, a bit more room for just that, that your mind doesn't immediately take you into some kind of conditioned response. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense.
2: Totally. It makes me think of um, this uh, kind of like little thought exercise that they teach us in like AA, like 12 step programs. Were you thinking of it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like basically, like it, they're talking about someone who's like having road rage, basically, or who's like in a car and is just so frustrated that the other drivers are like, you know, just not driving very well, and like there's very a lot, of, slow. there's a lot of traffic, and it's like really stressful. And the person's like really in their head about it, and it like tells you to like take a broader look, like to go up out of your car and look down at the whole scene and see everybody in their car and see what everybody is going through, and the fact that like you know everybody's late and like maybe somebody's having an emergency and like everybody's having like a hard time, and it's not just you. And when you see it in that greater perspective. It can help you get out of the like immediate stress response um, and practice more compassion for everybody exactly.
1: involved. Exactly, yeah. that's exactly at one hundred percent. You know, yeah. I think you know twelve step AA and twelve step is a very amazing institution. Well, it's not an institution, but program is what mm-hmm. we call it, right? Uh, but the fact that it has no agenda other than what it's there for, which is to get you to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. and that there's no hierarchy and and the 12th step which is the most beautiful one right you have to help others Mm -hmm. so once you kind of help yourself and and have some relief from this affliction the 12th step which is uh, I guess the last one you think the most important in some ways is to now you help others um it's very in you know, and and it talks about God, but it, you define your higher power for yourself and whatever that is. You can easily be a Buddhist and be an totally. AA and just yeah. talk about, you don't make, I wouldn't make Buddha my higher power. You just say, you know, whatever that connection is to your practice, your higher power. Because it, it certainly is, a high, you know, a bigger thing, a higher power. But I, I love the... Um, and AA forces you to start to look at your mind, right? You take an inventory of what you've been doing, which is basically how your mind works, right? What, yeah. How you've treated people, all those things. Um, and it's, it's really about taking responsibility, your yeah. body speech, you know actions of body speech and mind right mm-hmm. which is which is incredible and i think that's why it's so successful
3: mm-hmm. um, yeah
1: there there's a
0: huge number of parallels i think between 12 steps and all the stuff that you're describing
3: mm-hmm. um
0: yeah. and i mean especially you know you're talking about these like sticky thoughts that are mm-hmm. really hard to um move past when you're meditating and also just in your life right they're hard to move past um and you know in, in 12 steps, they, they tell you very, very specifically to look out for exactly those sticky thoughts, you know, um, they call them defects of character usually, but like, you know, something like, uh, like a resentment towards someone else exactly. um, is like one of these sticky thoughts that you just can't. If 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 you just let yourself stay stuck in it, like you're you're just going to be there forever, and you can't move past and it. And probably you
2: know? you're going to seek relief in a drink. Like yeah, that's
0: exactly. Yeah. And then and then they basically the the prescription for that is to extend compassion to people that you resent, and that's the way that you get through the resentment.
2: Yeah, know? like very early on, my sponsor had me praying for everybody that I was resentful for, resentful against, and I think it's like very similar to the meta meditation in the sense of just like extending that compassion to the people that you find it the hardest to extend that compassion to. And I also like what you were saying, Michael, about um, it doesn't mean you're a doormat. I think that people Mm. really struggle with this in with my work when I'm talking so much about compassion and extending compassion to people who, you know, may have done some fucked up things in their lives. You know, people immediately will message me and be like you know so you're saying that I have to like be friends with my abuser or something like that you know and I'm like I actually I didn't say that and it's like you know in fact like having healthy boundaries you know and like um that is compassionate like it is compassionate to to be boundaried with people and to like show people that you won't actually accept their behavior if it is abusive or if it is like hurting others like that you will have boundaries with it that you will be honest with them about it like that is true compassion because otherwise it's just enabling behavior and it's not good for them either so like true compassion is also you know it's honest and it is like clear with people about the fact that if they are you know acting in really fucked up ways then people aren't gonna like that um
1: boundaries are great
2: yeah boundaries (laughs) are really
1: healthy (laughs) Really healthy and really amazing, and I talk about that a lot, and and I also talk about that as friend. Like there's a couple of people that are different uh, in the past I was really close to, but there was a certain toxicity in the relationship that just couldn't change, and I had to not you know not be friend, not be in contact,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I realize it's okay, you know, and sometimes they're in my you know I try to think compassionately about them even have them in prayers and stuff like that does that help them i don't know it certainly helps me yeah not being resentful (laughs) all the time exactly not being angry at them all the time not feeling like i gotta you know i gotta stand up against them again and it's like the friendship was nowhere because it was this it was like this relationship that developed and and just stayed really stagnant yeah Um, yeah um, so boundaries are, you know, boundaries are really, really great. And you can do a lot of, um, I I think, exactly what you said. It's, uh, you don't have to just help your enemies or let, you know, what did you say? How did you put it? Do I have to lo- um, be you, like, nice to my enemies? Be friends yeah. with your abusers. <laughs> no, be yeah. friends with your abusers. No, absolutely not. You don't yeah. have to be friends with. You know, with anyone you don't want yeah. to, but it's like. Also, I heard in twelve step, it's a really great phrase. Would you rather be right or would you rather be free? You know, mm. it's like, you know, often we say, "Well, this person's wrong." You know, you know, you know. Okay, but if I'm talking about this person every day, well, who's the one who's kind of yeah. bound by this? Exactly. Well, that's it, right? That's and what I...
2: they call living rent free in your head.
1: <laughs> living rent free. Yeah, yeah,
0: totally. Um, Yeah. And I think this is something um, before we move on to our other questions, I I love this, this, this conversation. Um, I think this is something that people misunderstand, like fundamentally about this business of extending compassion to people that you fucking don't like, you know, Um, because they think that in a certain way, that's like you giving up control over the situation. To an extent, maybe there is like an element of that, like in in just in the sense of kind of surrendering to reality or something. But um, in reality, like often what happens when you um, extend compassion to people who you really dislike or even just accept situations that you wish were not happening or whatever is I think the way you put it was like developing spaciousness. But I think Mm. what that spaciousness is is like it gives you more options. And, and like you just mentioned, right? Like if you're spending all day, every day, uh, just like stuck in resentment, thinking about someone constantly, you know, you're not able to take a step back from that situation and move right. on with your life, right? You're stuck, mm. you are stuck and you do not have freedom, you know? And so actually like extending compassion to people that you don't like or whatever is a way to get your freedom back. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I also think, yeah, it's just funny that people, you know, have this have this notion that in order to do that, you would have to like, for example, be friends with your abuser because the whole point is that you're extending compassion to people that you don't necessarily like, you know, that you don't want to be friends with and you don't have to be friends with them. Yeah. You can extend compassion to people who you right. never interact with and you can extend a, a compassion to people that you would never want to necessarily mm-hmm. interact with. Right. And that's like part of the practice mm-hmm. and that, that actually gives it some of its power. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, great tangents that we all just went on. Um, <laughs> We wanted to ask you a little bit about like the arts, because you are, you know, a working artist and you, that is like your life. Um, And we're wondering about how this, like this spiritual worldview impacts your work as an artist, or do you Mm -hmm. see like coming into Buddhism that that has in any way shaped the way that you see either doing your own art or also like receiving other artists' work?
1: Um, Well, on the stuff that I do, that's that I'm involved in, like writing, like music, um, like the book that I wrote and a couple of the I have a couple of current screen, one screenwriting, one TV writing project, very much so on a literal level, like even Mm -hmm. content wise, some of these things will make their way into it. Um, as an actor, often you're doing things that you did. For the most part, you're doing stuff that you didn't write per se. So um, you're playing someone else that someone else has written. But I think all these things we're talking about affect your view of yourself, of the world, and how and the interplay between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said about that spaciousness, I think it's just, um, I think that comes into the work, you know? And and I think it, as an actor, it makes the characters richer because you can, like I, I, I teach acting once in a while. I, I recently, I taught two weeks in a row, a class in New York City. And I I stressed to the students that you can't judge your character on your own morals Mm. Mm. standard right because then you're judging them Mm -hmm. you're not coming from their place but in order to do that you kind of have to have a broad Mm. view um so i think if spirituality broadens your view of yourself again interacting with the world i think it can it definitely helps i think make the work a little more a little richer
3: mm-hmm.
1: um I will say one of the things that practice you know Buddhism meditation it's made my world feel more meaningful like my interaction with people more meaningful um Uh, seeking out, you know, like how how we met on Instagram and and me following you and hearing all these things you're saying that I thought were very important and very moving and very honest and courageous, you know, and and meeting up. And and like, that has a lot of meaning for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think years ago, I probably wouldn't necessarily have room for that in my Mm -hmm. world. Like, it wouldn't i wouldn't re- recognize the importance of cultivating those things and even in everyday you know with strangers or on the street or waiting for the train or mm-hmm. something like just it it brings a different level of meaning to life and i and i think as an artist that has to be mm-hmm. enriching
2: absolutely
0: Um, You do this thing, Michael, that we both really like, um, which is that you you do these kind of like elaborate shout outs to people that you like um, on your Instagram, like just people that have inspired you or people that you're really digging their work or whatever. Um, And you yeah, you say exactly why you like them and how much you like them and like why what they're doing is really cool. Um, Can you tell us about this practice of yours and why you do it?
1: Mm -hmm. I, I start like well, well, I said before when I went on Instagram. I was like, "Well, what are you going to do on Instagram? What are you going <laughs> to post?" You know, I, I didn't really feel like putting pictures of my lunch on there because <laughs> I didn't think that was that interesting or important. Um, not that if you do that, it's a you know, it's just I don't I didn't feel that it was something that I could offer. But it was like the peop- the the people that have touched me, you know, especially artists. I'm talking about, I'm, of course, the teachers, the Buddhist teachers. But artists like, you know, writers and and musicians and actors and filmmakers and painters and poets, um, I don't know what I would be without that. I don't I don't know what life would be without that. You know, Um, it's very important to me, those influences, especially the ones that were there for me when I was young, that I Mm. that really opened up the world to me and really made me see what art can do. Maybe what I could aspire to, um, I I hold people like that in such high regard that I feel um, it makes me very happy to uh, share that, you know. And you know, because some if someone winds up picking up a book that they never would have picked up because they saw it on my Instagram, I think that's wonderful.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's also the practice. It um, It's kind of like eulogizing people while they're still alive, which I think is really beautiful because very often when an artist or somebody who has done really important work passes away, there's this huge flood of, yeah. you know, everybody's talking about how much their work yeah. meant to for them. For two
1: weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and okay. it's like, you
2: know, how lovely would it have also been for that person to have experienced that? when they were alive, you know, and I yeah. think we could really benefit from celebrating people more explicitly, like while they're still with us. Yeah. Um. And so I really yeah. appreciate that. And I also think, you know, being an artist or, or being any sort of person who does creative work in public is it's really, it's a vulnerable thing to do. Um. It takes a lot, you know, and I think these days um, like, I like what you do because it is, the opposite of this current culture um, that is like really, really negative towards people who are being vulnerable in public. Um, There's a lot of like criticism. There's a lot of just like kind of like open contempt and also the cancel culture stuff that we talk about where people are just kind of coming for each other online. Um, And so, yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on what you think, Um, the impact Um, is on artists of this kind of culture of hostility and negativity that we're currently living in.
1: Just going back to what you said about the eulogizing, because a lot of times on uh, less now, but when I kind of start, a lot of people would see a picture of someone I'm selling and think, oh, my God, did they die? I'm like, no, I'm I'm just saying (laughs) they're great and you should (laughs) listen to their record. That's all. Is that so weird? I mean, I don't think so. But yeah, it is. uh, It is vulnerable. And when I first got on social media, uh, it was 2020. And then it was the summer and it was during the campaign and politics were crazy. And I was in quarantine and kind of losing my, you know, (laughs) equilibrium over the politics and what was going on. So I would post stuff you know, about just because Trump was just making me insane and things he would say and do and things like that. And I didn't know this, but half my f- audience were very right-wing, you know. And I wasn't prepared for that. I for mm-hmm. Somehow I just thought people knew what I was into or what I was like. And it was very strange. And there mm-hmm. was a lot, a lot, a lot of blowback. Mm. Um And then there'd be blowback from, and I I was posting a lot of politics and a lot of just social things. And then there'd be pushback from the left as well for certain things that, you know, if you don't really follow a prescribed thing that people think you should, it's, you know, you're accused of being just whatever. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know what's, you know, whatever the hell, a neo neo lib or whatever the labels they want to put you on—like you know—you have to have specific beliefs to be in this category or not. Um, but what I learned, and I learned it—I learned a lot from from you and your your page. You know, that it's okay. A, a it's okay to ask questions. It's mm-hmm. okay not to because, you know. Like when all the protests were happening after George Floyd's death and, and all of a sudden everyone's talking about defund the police. Well, a lot of people on the left didn't really understand what that meant. Mm. And we're very kind of had a difficult time understanding what that would mean. Should I be in favor? Because all these people there on the left, they're saying that and they're saying, if you're not, you know, all cops are bastards and if you don't really think this way, then you're not really a true lefty, whatever the hell it was. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people did not understand what that meant. And it became very polarizing and kind of worked against itself. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, slow, I find slogan, sloganeering kind of that, that kind of reductivism can Mm -hmm. be really, really dangerous because listen, we all know the way policing had been done needs to change. I think there's way (laughs) big things we can do to change how we, especially in big cities, who's doing what, who's taking care of mentally ill, who's taking care of drug addicts, who's, you -hmm. know, um, dealing with crime. Um, But we have to figure out how to do that. And people have, there's a learning curve on figuring out how this all could change. Like a slogan to me, the slogan ACE, all cops are bastards. To me, that's horrible because I've met cops who are amazing human beings and they, and they say, well, it's not about cops. It's about the type of police. Well, well, if you have to explain a slogan, it's really bad. A slow, if you're going to have a slogan, it better say what it means because well, what do I do with this thought that I, I mean, I was on the train the other day that these, these two NYPD were on the train. They were like kids, man. The mm-hmm. girl, it was a woman who was like 22 or something who I started talking to, who was so sweet and so kind. um, I think that really got people, divided people in ways where they started being afraid to speak up, started to be afraid to say, I don't believe this. You can believe that. That's okay. But I need more information. I need to be able to formulate my thought through my processing of information and things like that. Um, And being in the public eye saying some of these things uh, is very difficult because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. You're afraid of alienating certain people. Um, And it's hard to find nuance in these conversations. And it's hard to get really specific about what you mean
3: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, without really having a dialogue which often is not offered on social media
3: hmm.
2: Yeah. And I mean, there's like the social media element of it all. And then also there's like the the work like art itself. Right. Because I think um, and I don't know if, if you come across this at all with any of the work that you've done, but a lot of writers, for example, are, you know, being like called out on the Internet for like the moral failings of their characters, which is absurd because it's like art used to be a space where you could like explore like
3: you know
2: like the human (laughs) complexity of like it wasn't all about everybody being like i don't know politically correct in the book like it was like you were exploring like complicated like ethical questions in the book or whatever right and now people are you know writers i'm more in the writing world but like i think other types of artists are probably coming up against this too where it's like now they're worried about creating their work because they're they're afraid of this like um of it being put under this microscope and of being um yeah just kind of called out on the internet
1: yeah well i mean i don't look to artists to be my moral
3: Mm.
1: you know compass points um if if we held artists to this kind of stainless moral standard rock and roll would not exist yeah we would have no art I don't think poetry would really exist or novels. Yeah. We would have no art painting, you know, Caravaggio. I mean, I don't know. Um, And the whole thing about canceling someone, it's like, well, they did this now we're going to just never show their work again, or nobody should look at their work again. And, and all that, that kind of thing. It's um, I find all that very frightening and and to me, it's about power, like people feeling power more than some any kind of moral. Mm. That it's any kind of moral kind of right, you know, rightening or like uh, what's that word, you know, getting getting in balance. I just think it's, I don't know. It's <laughs> like um, sometimes I'll post about John Lennon because I, I love John Lennon and. I live near where his memorial is, and I go on his birthday. And people are like John Lennon beat his wife. You know, his—I mm-hmm. guess when he was first married, he—he he, his first wife when he was, you know, he was a kid. You know, without a, grew up without a mother, who was really poor, whatever the situation was, and he was fucked up. And at one point in his life, he was not such a good guy mm-hmm. who made really good songs. When he grew got older, and you know, had a more a mature relationship. He didn't beat his wife. So the fact that he beat his wife means what? Should we not honor the fact that he gave a lot of great, you know, music and, uh, and thought to the world? Or, should you know, does that mean, what does that mean?
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: you know um, that that should be the thing that I post? <laughs> the gentleman right. beat his wife. You right. know, um, does that negate all this music? Is that I'm not going to listen to this music? Or that it, and also the idea of freezing people.
2: Yes. So Freezing
1: people at a certain time in their life. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, I admit it 25, 26 years ago, I was kind of a mess. You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? It's like, so if someone knew me then and hasn't seen me in 25 years and says, oh, all this stuff he's doing is all bullshit because he's really this guy. I'm not frozen 25 years ago. Yeah. People change. Yeah. People evolve. Yeah. People, you know,
0: it's, 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 it's. it's interesting cuz this impulse both both to judge like let's say like judge an uh, like a writer by what their characters do or to judge a person by what they did 25 years ago or something Um, I feel like used to be very much the domain of like the Christian, right. You know, they would, they would be looking at books and be like this book is like unChristian because there's characters in it that engage in like these like sinful acts or whatever. And therefore we don't want it being taught to our children and like this, that, and the other. And and we don't want our children listening to the Beatles, you know? (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's just interesting that the script has been flipped so hard um, and it's now people who, uh at least think of themselves as being on the left who are often um, engaged in this kind of like moral puritanism about art and also about people
1: about the but but about the artist like the artist themselves not not so much about the art right 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 whereas the christian right is saying no the content they're not really (laughs) judging the moral well they probably can judge the more that you know the moral yeah i think they do both but yeah. yeah 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 But the left yeah. is more apt to judge the, the the morality of the person themselves than the art itself.
0: Mm, that's interesting, yeah.
2: Um. I guess, yeah, one thing that this, this just makes me think is like, you know, I just, I really feel for young artists, you know, like new artists. Because when you think about this culture and like what you're saying, you know, imagine if the culture had been like this when John Lennon was, for example, just starting out you know like would we have his body of work
1: yeah who knows and,
2: and so i think about artists today because a lot of um a lot of people write to me who want to create you know and have an impulse to create but they're so afraid of like what the consequences would be of basically doing something like that in public of people you know, finding out things from their past or being hypercritical of the content of their work that they aren't actually, um, creating. And I don't know. I just think art is really important and it does something very specific. And I don't, I don't think this was one of our questions, but I'm just kind of, I'm just freestyling at this moment, but, um, like I kind of just, I'm curious because like we've said, you know, like art is not where you get your morals. Like art is something else and and yet art is so important like what do what role do you think art has and why is that so important
0: just a simple easy question
2: you know because you're talking about how you are like you have this big spiritual life but you also have this practice of of really celebrating artists you know and really celebrating you know, what they do so like what are they, what do they do
1: <laughs> i think art makes you feel less alone in the world mm. That um, in a way that just it I think, in a much more potent way than just somebody speaking, right, because a lot of art doesn't hit you on a on a just literal or logical level, obviously, a book is literal it's that's the medium, mm-hmm. but it's a story, mm-hmm. and that story and these characters can hit you in a very visceral level because mm-hmm. you relate to it and you understand what that person's going through. And the fact that you understand what that person's going through makes you think someone understands what you're going through. And more abstract arts like music or painting or things like that, it's the same thing. It's a different kind of resonance where you feel less alone in the world, where you feel like, wow, some of these thoughts that I've had mm. that maybe in my neighborhood and in my family is very strange. Other people have people who are mm. really talented and smart and are sharing it with the world. To me, it's about the, the, like when I was talking about when I was young, those artists that really, you know, were the guiding lights, it was because it made me feel less, less alone, less of a freak, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: less crazy. Um, And I think in some ways, I think that's what what the best art does.
2: Mm -hmm. Totally.
1: Yeah, like it allows us to like share feelings.
2: And like
1: see each other's
2: humanity. See each
1: other's humanity. Be connected on the
2: level of our humanity. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. With all the flaws and all the faults. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. It's like you don't look for them for the moral. I mean, yeah, you don't look because it's, you know, they're not not creating it out of that place. They're creating out of a place of connecting to where they're at.
2: Exactly. Cause it's like, you know, we have our, what some people might call our higher selves and like maybe what you're talking about in our like Buddha nature, you know, this, like this way where we are in alignment with like doing no harm and like doing good in the world. But like most of us in our lifetimes have obviously fallen short of that. And we fall short of that often uh, in various, to various degrees and in various ways. And it's like, if all we had was just like the ideal to look to, then all we do is just feel how we fall short. And we also need space to like, look at how we are, how humans actually are in all our messiness, you know? And I think that's, yeah, like that's what art does.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, Michael, um, you've been quite publicly supportive of our critiques of cancel culture. Um, And we were wondering if, I mean, I'm sure you have like lots of reasons for that, but we were wondering if your spirituality has impacted the way that you think about cancel culture or, uh, yeah, I don't know, any other, anything else you want to say about that?
1: No, there were certain personal things that, ha- you know, that I saw happen to people close to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to bring it up before, and I forgot, um, self-censorship, because you touched mm. on that. And Africa Brooke is another great mm-hmm. thinker who I found on Instagram. Yeah, you- we've had her on the pod. Yeah, who a lot of her work is about that, Mm -hmm. because that's what starts to happen. You know, you know, you feel like what you're saying is not going to be popular with the people you want to be popular with. Mm. Um, So you start to pick and choose what you're going to talk about, politically, what things you're going to support, what you're going to, and and I think that's very. I think that's very sad. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think it's I think it's something we have to move away from. And uh, I guess there's an element of censorship and everything because you have to maintain some level of privacy. But like I said before, the idea that we don't automatically know everything. Mm-hmm. Just because you see somebody saying this slogan or this is what should happen at People need time mm. to change their thought, you know, we're moving towards different ways of governing or policing or handling things as a society, which we should. But, you know, we, we, people should be allowed to ask questions.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Or people should say, you know, I don't agree with that yet. I don't mean – it was interesting. I had a, a friend of the family, a friend of my parents' came over, I hadn't seen him in many years. There's somebody I love, you know, uh, my friend's mother. And she was all talking about Trump. And I said, I can't stand Trump, you know. And she said, uh, I said, I'm, I'm really, I'm much to, to the left than you are, right? And she said, well, you have to be because you're, I said, I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- I don't have to be. I, I said, most people who are in the arts tend to be more that way because... For whatever reason, I said. And, it, and she thought I was mad at her. And I wasn't because I understand her point of view. And she, and then a little while later, she came to me and she said, you know, tell me some of the reasons why you think you do, because maybe if they make sense to me, um, maybe I want to think that way, too. And that really blew my mind. And it was mm. like, because she's probably so used to being around only people who think the way she does. Right. And she loves me. And thinks that, you know, uh, always thought I was smart. So she's thinking, well, maybe there's something that I'm not hearing or I'm not a lot. Because, you know, if you're watching Fox News as your sole right. source of information, yeah. four hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get a specific, yeah. you know, inundation of information that's just about that. And the fact that she was kind of open to that. And I went into a couple of points. like well, OK, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. It really moved me.
3: Mm. And
1: I said, you know, we don't really we don't really expect that to happen. And I think we kind of like just say, Well, that person's at, and I'm this, and and that's it. And it's like and then when you think about it, it's like we have so much more in common. Most people all want the same mm-hmm. thing, right? You want to you want to have affordable housing. You want to have health care. You want to have education for yourself, for your kids or whatever. You want to have some kind of relative safe environment to live in. You want to have food on your table. You mm-hmm. want to have meaning in your life.
3: Mm.
1: I mean, yeah, most people want all that stuff. Yet in America, especially, it, it, we're so completely divided about so many things. It's... And I think that's deliberate on the, the yeah. people in power One hundred percent serves them.
2: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I agree with that so much, like finding that common ground and then trying to work from there instead of constantly emphasizing all our differences and why we can't talk to each other, like actually just being like, look at all this that we have in common. And in fact, maybe we could find some common solutions. Um, so, yeah, I just we kind of got off this topic, but I kind of wanted to ask you just For anyone listening who is an artist of some kind and who is early on in their career or who is just starting out, but is noticing this kind of culture um, of hostility that we're existing in or is a bit nervous about kind of jumping into the world of the arts and taking those risks, would you have any words to offer them? Or what would you say to yourself, maybe, if you were starting your career at this time?
1: You know? I mean, I always encourage people to find like a peer group of, of mm. like-minded artists. I think that's really, when you're young, it's really, really important and really helpful. Um, you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of courage that has to be cultivated in order to, to really do it, if that's what you want to do. And, um, you know... The personal is universal in a way, right? Mm-hmm. When if your work is personal, and true,
3: mm-hmm.
1: it'll be universal,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, because because we're interconnected, and because we're you know we're we're human beings, and we we all feel love and anger and resentment and feel kind sometimes and feel generous sometimes and feel stingy sometimes and all those (laughs) things. And we, you know, at a very fundamental level, you know, there's, there's a lot of understanding, but I, you know, I would encourage them to just be, you know, to be courageous. And it's like, what's the alternative? You know, living some life repressed, life that's repressed, where of you know, where you're fear and you, you don't express yourself. And listen, not everyone should be an artist, you know. And some people are very happy. Not, it's 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 a difficult life. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of um, ups and downs, you know. Um, but if it is who you are it's certainly, you know, a very meaningful path.
3: That's
2: beautiful. Thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, what uh, What projects are you working on uh, these days that you're excited about? And where can people find out more about it?
1: Um, you can always follow me on Instagram at real Michael Imperioli, because I'm always blabbing about the stuff I'm doing there. But um, <laughs> we just finished a new album that... Mm-hmm is going to be mastered so the songs the album and at least one single will be out very soon we're playing two shows in brooklyn next week wednesday and well the, i don't know when this comes out so the 15th and 17th of february but uh we're debuting a new video that victoria my wife victoria directed for the mm. next single i just saw a rough cut and it's i'm really excited about the video it's really good and very excited about the album nice um and then I have two projects that I'm writing, with other people—one for uh, TV and one for film—and uh, that's that's all the, the
0: current stuff. Nice, yeah. We were uh, we were sad we missed your your show last time you came to Montreal, but uh, next time you're it was up fun.
1: here, next yeah. time Montreal, you're up here,
0: I hope we can catch
1: it. They were a great, great audience. Really, good, really cool people. Had a good Amazing. time.
2: Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It was actually a really you. lovely interview. And thanks for sharing your perspective and your wisdom. And always great to chat with you. So
1: same here. Thanks a thanks lot. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.